Good morning. I'd like to read from Exodus 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. You say, well, what does that have to do with us? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6, Paul says, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And here's a verse you may be familiar with, but maybe you don't remember the context. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. We read Exodus 32. And we see these people who had encountered God on the mountain just days earlier. And God appeared in lightning and thunder. Moses went up on the mountain and just a few days later, these people are building a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping it. And we say, what were they thinking? How could they do that? That would never happen to me. And Paul says, Take heed, lest you fall. Paul says, don't think you're above this. You know, as I look at my own life, and I look at the church today, I think we are guilty of some serious golden calfism. The church today is filled with golden calves. This church is filled with golden calves. 
And if you're honest, your life is filled with golden calves. And so this morning, I want to point out, directly out of this passage, four characteristics of golden calf worship. And I have presented them in the form of a confession. And I've made it personal. And I want you to understand, I'm not up here thinking, well, maybe you, you, and you are guilty. This is a corporate confession. Because we are all guilty. But I have put it in the personal confession mode because we all each individually have to embrace this if we're going to corporately confess it. First confession. I have sought leaders without conviction. God led Israel out of their bondage in Egypt, split the Red Sea, they walked through on dry land, they looked in their rearview mirror and they saw the Egyptian army drown. God led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When they needed water, He brought the water out of a rock. They needed food and He brought food every day from heaven. God brings them to Mount Sinai and they see God as a consuming fire. Moses goes up on the mountain and he's only there for a few days. In fact, he was only there for 40 days. We don't know how many days had passed when they say, where'd Moses go? And they come to Aaron, who is the designated leader at this point in time. And they say, make us a God who we can follow. And I want you to notice this. Aaron gave a sinful people exactly what they wanted. The leader gave sinful people exactly what they wanted. And I am convinced that the church culture today is raising up leaders who are giving people, sinful people, exactly what they want. I woke up one day this week and I wanted to check the weather channel, so I put on the weather channel to see what the temperature was because I knew it was cold outside. I accidentally hit the forward button and moved to the next channel, and it was a channel I'd never been on. We have too many channels, you know. There's a guy preaching there, and he uses two verses. First verse, without vision, my people perish. Second verse, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And then he took those two verses and he told the people in his congregation, an 18,000-member congregation, you simply need to visualize what you want and you'll get it. And I kid you not, he put up on the screen pictures of mansions 
luxury cars, yachts, diamonds, and said, you need to visualize what you want, and you'll get it. What is that? Covetousness. And it was sad because they scanned the audience and they would show people glassy-eyed looking up going, Amen. Amen. If I just visualize it, my business will be a success and I'll make all kinds of money and I'll live in a mansion. What's he doing? He's giving sinful people exactly what they want. And I turned off the TV and couldn't help think of first or Second Timothy 4, 3, where it says, a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate them to themselves teachers fashioned after their own desires. We want a leader without conviction. We want a leader who will give us exactly what we want. Well, that's an extreme case. But does it happen on a broader scale today? Does it happen more subtly in the church today? As I look around the church, the name of the game today is what will bring the people in? What are they asking for? What will appeal to them? What are their felt needs? And everything revolves around that. We want a leader who will draw the crowds. He's got to be charismatic, funny, clever, articulate, cool, good-looking, with lots of hair. That's the bottom line. And I don't hear anybody asking, what's his prayer life like? What's his knowledge of the Word? What's his submissive submission to God about? What's his character like? No. We ask, is he popular? And does he give me what I want? The church culture today is all about felt needs. I don't know about you, but when I was lost, I didn't know what I needed. My felt needs were a mansion, a yacht, Diamonds. When I was lost, I didn't feel lost. I didn't feel like I was doomed to hell. I didn't feel like I was separated from a loving, holy God. And I am thankful that somebody had the boldness to tell me what I needed to hear and not what I wanted to hear. prominent message in the church environment today is man-centered, not God-centered. It is a crowd-pleasing Christianity, and because of that, I would say it is a cheap Christianity. A message that promises people everything and costs them nothing. A message that comforts us in our sin and never confronts us in our sin. And I have to confess to you, that I am tempted on every hand 
to make people feel good about idolatrous devotion to more money, bigger houses, better possessions. To make people feel good about idolatrous devotion to sports, sex, success. To make people feel it's okay to love those things more than you love God. Because that's what people want. And fathers, I would say to you, as leaders in your home, you are going to be tempted as well to give your family what makes them happy rather than what makes them holy. And if we're careful, or if we're not careful, what happened in Exodus 32 will happen in our homes and will happen in our church. We will seek leaders and become leaders without conviction. Second, confession. I have claimed salvation without dedication. Look at verse 4. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is the God who delivered us. We are saved. And then look at verse 6 again. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now when it says they rose up to play, they weren't playing volleyball. They weren't playing horseshoes. This is the same term used throughout the Old Testament for playing the harlot. When Moses came down from the mountain in verse 19 of this chapter and saw what they were doing, he was so angry, he threw the tablets down and broke them. See, they were claiming salvation while indulging in sin. Is it possible that that's happening today? I think that this is a picture that happens time and time and time again. How many people walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get baptized, are told that they're going to heaven And nothing changes in their lives. And someone says to you, your life is far from God, and you say, but I prayed a prayer when I was eight. I can live however I want to. Because I was saved when I was eight. Do you really believe that you can say that? And be worshiping God? See, I think if you're honest, you are worshiping the golden calf. I run into a whole host of people 
who claim salvation and are reveling in their sin. I would call that blasphemy. In fact, I don't even understand how you would want to go to heaven and not want God. If you don't want God, if your desire is not for God, if you don't love God, then you don't have salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. and you know his majesty, you're going to want to get rid of all the other junk in your life and follow Jesus. I love the story Jesus told in Matthew 13, 44. It tells about a man who finds a treasure in a field. And I don't know how he found the treasure digging around in somebody's field, but he did. And it says he dug a hole and buried it again. And then he went out and sold everything he had to go buy that field. And people had to say to him, you're crazy. Why would you sell everything you've got to buy one field? And he probably said, I got a hunch. Salvation 
In fact, let me, let me add this. I, I didn't notice this in that passage before, but you know what it says? It says he joyfully sold everything he had. He gladly sold everything he had because he found a treasure that was worth far more. Salvation is finding someone who is worth selling everything for. Have you experienced that? I shouldn't have to provoke you to follow Jesus. If, if you know Jesus, then you know he is the treasure of all treasures. You should be throwing stuff overboard to follow him more faithfully. Is that true of your life? If not, maybe you're claiming salvation without dedication. Maybe you need to confess today, I am bowing down to the golden calf. Third confession. I have manufactured worship without humiliation. Look at verse 5 again. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now I want you to notice something. They are taking the guidelines for the worship of God and they are using them to worship an idol. They're having a feast. They're offering burnt offerings. They're offering peace offerings. In fact, they are calling the calf the Lord. That's the word Yahweh. They are worshiping with all the right rituals, And with all the right words, the only thing missing is God. They fashioned a God with their own hand. They called it Lord. And they worshipped it with all the scriptural directives. Are we ever guilty of that? Taking the God of the Bible and twisting Him into our image, twisting Him into a God who is okay with our immorality, twisting Him into a God who is okay with our materialism, who is okay with our nominalism, who is okay with our half-hearted devotion, a nice, middle-class, American edition of God. He looks like us. He thinks like us. He's perfect for us. We don't have to change a thing. But you know what?
when we do this, we come together as a church and we worship in our traditions and we sing our songs and we lift our hands and who are we worshiping? We are worshiping ourselves. They were worshiping themselves under the guise of worshiping God. Do you see that in your own life? We come to church when it's convenient for us. We listen to the preacher as long as we like what he says. We pray, but not so long as to get out of our comfort zone. It's got to be short and sweet, because that's what we like. We sing the songs we like. And if we don't, we let somebody know about it. We give but we give what we like. We would never give this as a tip to somebody at a restaurant, but after all, God's a golden calf. What's he going to say? If we're honest, our worship revolves around us. We might as well be honest and just sing, it's all about me, Jesus. And all this is for me, for my glory and my fame. It's not about you. As if I should do things your way. I alone am God. And I surrender to no one. Here's the picture of true worship in Scripture in Nehemiah 8. Ezra gets up with the Word of God. I love this. Gets up with the Word of God and he reads it and explains what it means. And he does that from morning to midday. He's just reading the Bible and saying, here's what that means. Reading and giving the understanding of it, guess what happened? From morning to midday, the people stood up and said, amen, amen. And then they bowed down and worshipped with their faces to the ground. And they began to weep. Contrast that with they sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. You see, the difference is that the God of the Bible in all his greatness and grace and glory and grandeur brings us to our knees in awe. And we have to be careful in our day when all it takes to create a good worship experience is a cool stage, talented musicians, a charismatic leader, songs people like, lights, action, and guess what? People walk away without ever encountering God. 
Where is the brokenness? Where is the humility? Where is the Ezra experience where you hear the word of God and you're broken and you're weeping? Where is the Isaiah 6 experience where he sees the Lord high and lifted up and he says, woe is me. Is that too extreme for us? Listen, if brokenness and humility have no place in our worship, then God has no place in our worship. Because we have manufactured worship without humiliation. And meanwhile, God is saying, to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. David is saying, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God is saying, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Fourth confession. I have created a God without retribution. You know, the beauty of the golden calf is you can set up an altar, you can offer your offerings, you can bow down and worship, you can indulge in all kinds of revelry, and nothing will happen. Because the golden calf just sits there. R.C. Sproul said, The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This is a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. Isn't that what we want? A God who doesn't intrude on our selfish lifestyle. A God who doesn't intrude on our fun. Read verse 9 and 10 of Exodus 32. And it says, While they were worshiping and rejoicing, God is saying, My anger is burning. I will destroy them. We live in a day when the wrath of God is being maligned and doubted and questioned and ignored. When I look at the God that we have created, the golden calf, today, He is a God of love and mercy, 
with no holiness, no wrath, and no justice. And I could talk today about Rob Bell and his book, Love Wins, but I would rather talk about us today. Do we really believe that the wrath of God is real? Do we believe 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that says when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Do we believe that? I hear people all the time say, that was a hell of a song. You played a hell of a game. We had a hell of a time. When we talk like that, it tells me we have no idea what hell is. In Mark 9, Jesus described hell as a place of fiery agony that is unquenchable. He said it's so bad that if you have to cut your hand off to stop sinning, you're better to go into the kingdom of God with one hand than have two hands to go into hell. If your foot offends you, cut it off. You're better to limp into life than to have two feet to walk into hell. If your eye offends you, pluck your eye out. Because you're better to go into the kingdom with a pirate patch than to see fully as you walk into hell. And then Jesus added this. It's the place where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. In Revelation chapter 20, we have the description of the lake of fire. And the Bible says it's a place where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You say, well, Dan, do you really take that literally? Yes, I do. You say, well, what if those are just symbols? I don't think they're symbols, but let's say they are symbols. What are they a symbol for? Snow? Why would God give us a symbol? He gives us a symbol because what he wants to explain to us is something we really can't grasp. So even if it is a symbol, that tells me it's far worse than anything we can comprehend. If it's a symbol, then spending Eternity in unending, unquenchable fire doesn't even capture how bad it is. The Bible tells us that hell is a place of fiery agony, Mark 9. It tells us it's a place of conscious torment, Luke 16. It tells us it's a place of outer darkness in Matthew 22. And it tells us 
It is a place of eternal duration. Revelation 14, 11 says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. That's deafening, isn't it? George Whitfield used to urge people to consider the torment of burning like a living coal, not for an instant or for a day, but for millions and millions of ages at the end of which people will realize that they are no closer to the end than when they first began. And they will never, ever, ever be delivered from that place. This book is true. I hope you believe it. And we are not playing games. When we malign the the wrath of God and doubt the wrath of God or ignore the wrath of God, two things happen. Number one, we minimize the mercy of God. And secondly, we minimize the mission of the church. First, we minimize the mercy of God. You see, when you malign the wrath of God, you immediately undercut the beauty and power of the cross. Because when Jesus went to the cross, why was that so significant? When Jesus went to the cross, let me tell you this, it wasn't all about the Roman soldiers and what they did to Jesus. It wasn't that they beat Him and scourged Him and nailed Him and mocked Him. People watch the movie The Passion and see that happen and they say, I don't even want my kids to see that. Well, let me tell you this. What you don't see is far worse than what you can see. And if you want to see what the cross costs, just look at Jesus in the garden. In the garden the night before the cross, He is wailing in prayer with loud cries saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He is sweating drops of blood in the garden as he looks at the cross. And he says, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. What's the cup? Isaiah 51 says it's filled with the wine of God's wrath. Jeremiah 25 says it's a cup filled with the fury of God's wrath. Revelation 14 says it's the wine press of God's wrath all stomped down and put into that one cup. Why was he sweating blood? Was it because he was afraid of the Roman soldiers? There have been plenty of people who have died as martyrs since then. A lot of them went singing to their death. Christopher Love was facing his beheading and he writes a note to his wife that says, Today they will sever me from my physical head, but they can never sever me from my spiritual head. And he goes to the guillotine singing with his wife applauding. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was stoned to death and his face was beaming like the face of an angel. 
did these people have more courage than Jesus? Did those people have more faith than Jesus? Absolutely not. You see, Jesus was sweating blood in the garden, not because he was about to face the Roman soldiers, but because he was about to face the eternal wrath of God. He was about to bear all the sin of all mankind for all time on the cross. And what happened on the cross was that he endured your sin and my sin for us. He took the full cup of God's wrath and he drank it down to the last drop and he turned it upside down and he said, it is finished. And there is no more wrath for you and me. And that's mercy. And I don't know how you can understand that and not come away singing, what a wonderful Savior we have. And if you minimize the wrath of God, you will minimize the mercy of God. But then secondly and lastly, we minimize the mission of the church. There's a big push in the church today to care about temporal suffering in the world, and I am behind that 100%. There is starvation in our world. There's sex trafficking going on in the world. There are so many things going wrong in our world. There is so much suffering in our world, but listen to me. We need to be concerned about the physical suffering of people. But we never can lose sight of the spiritual suffering of people. People are lost. People are under the wrath of God. People are on a broad road that leads to destruction. And that needs to be our heartbeat. That needs to motivate us. They say there are 6.8 billion people in the world. The most liberal projections say a third of those are Christians. We probably would say it's not that high. But even if it is, that still leaves four and a half billion people without Christ and on a road to eternal death. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us about a little G God in the world who blinds the minds of people because he wants them to go to hell. Verse 6 talks about a big G God who is shining his light into people's hearts who desires that they come to know Him. Verse 4, little G God blinding people. Verse 6, big G God shining His light. You know what verse 5 says? It says, we, right in the middle of this, proclaim Christ. Little G is blinding. God is shining His light. 
we have the responsibility of proclaiming the light of the world, Jesus Christ. In your community, in your workplace, at your school, on your athletic team, proclaim Christ. And then go to the 6,000 plus people groups who have never heard the gospel. Our mission is to take the gospel from here to the ends of the earth until our king comes back. And I believe that when you really understand the wrath of God, that will be what you breathe for. That will be what you live your life for. That will be what you lose your life for. Because that is our mission. When we read Exodus 32, we are them. We are them. So as we close our service this morning, I would like to challenge you to confess with me. I have sought leaders without conviction. I have claimed salvation without dedication. I have manufactured worship without humiliation that does not drive me to my knees in awe of God. And I have created a God without retribution.